0: Let's pray together. Father, may we have that single-minded focus this morning uh, that more than a routine, more than a habit or a schedule, we are here because of the blood of Christ. Father, I pray that you would awaken our hearts and our minds anew to just the incredible preciousness that is the blood that washes away sin, that calls us to renewal that leads us to your throne Father thank you for the blood that compels us to sing compels us to pray to seek your word to find truth that we can be changed molded and refined may this now be our focus God as we enter into this next moment of worship speak to us through your spirit through the blood of Christ in Jesus name Amen and amen. You all can be seated. Good morning, church. How is everybody today? Good, 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 good. Man, it is fall season. Can I get an amen for the change in weather? I mean, several days this weekend where it was just awesome outside, and I hope you all are enjoying the start to the fall season as much as I am. And, uh, you know, the fall is always enjoyable, lots of things going on uh, in the life of school, for students, for our careers, for our friendships, for our church, and hopefully you all are enjoying uh, the the new pace and the new uh, season as it really begins to fall and and get underway. A couple of things that I want to continue to encourage you to consider as you think about uh, what that means for the life of this church and engaging into the life of this church. We still have our Enriched classes that we've started this year that we would love for you to come be a part of on Sunday mornings at 930. We've got our discipleship groups that have been kicked off. If, if you haven't gotten connected with one yet, uh, you should have been contacted if you signed up for one or at least submitted that interest form. Uh, if you haven't filled out that form, then uh, you still can, right? That's, that's going to be available throughout the year so that we can get you connected to discipleship groups. So whether it's here in this service or the UBC Enriched classes or discipleship groups, those are all different arenas where we hope to provide teaching, community, vision, all those different things that are so important to us as a church family. Uh, We got great things happening on Wednesday night, got opportunities for youth, for children. Again, a lot of those discipleship groups take place on Wednesday night, but we also have renewal which is a great way for us to take a very concerted effort towards God working in our lives and us moving down this path of discipleship. So a a lot of great things that we constantly try to encourage you to consider and engage in. And a lot of that speaks to the vision that we have as a church and some specific goals that we've set for ourselves in the last couple of years, really a year and a half or so. And just wanted to quickly highlight those, just put those in front of you again. A lot of times when we talk about the vision of church, we talk about discipleship, healing, and justice and, and we gave some specific things that we wanted to be praying for and focused on as a church family uh, when we look at ways to pursue those, those areas of discipleship, healing, and justice. And we often refer to this as the 220 and 200. Uh, and so we, we've talked about uh, healing in terms of renewal and the renewal ministry that we have on Wednesday night. And so when we talk about two, we're saying we want to see two more renewal groups uh, developed this year. And, and that's a huge part of us demonstrating a, a, a level of growth and a level of progress in that ministry. And we hit a huge milestone in that regard just this past week on Wednesday when we got to see several people graduate, several of the ladies graduate from a whole year of going through that program. Can we just put our hands together for the effort of those incredible women? It's really awesome. And I know not all of you could be there, but on Wednesday we had a chance to do a little bit of a commencement and a ceremony and celebration, and we got to hear their testimonies. And it was so powerful, y'all. Um, you're gonna get a chance to hear more uh, about that in the upcoming weeks, and, but I just want you to know some incredible things that are happening through the life of that ministry and grateful for those who report into it and we wanna continue to see that growth. We wanna see two more groups develop in that regard. Uh, when we talk about justice, we talk about advocating for foster care and adoption and that's where the number 20 developed where we said as a church, we wanna make sure that we have, or we, we aim for at least 20 individuals or families that are committed to advocating for foster care and adoption. A lot of that has happened organically as people have really just started stepping into things like CASA or actually becoming foster parents or even ways to assist and meet the needs of foster families. Uh, But when we actually initially put this in front of you all back in April with our commitment survey and we said, hey, we want to see 20 some odd people come forward with that sort of commitment, we had more than 50 people on that survey, expressed interest in advocating for foster care and adoption, which, which is a level of confirmation that the Lord is really stirring that sort of focus within our church. That's a way that we can be a light in the darkness. And, and so if you were one of those 50, if you weren't one of those 50, but that still resonates with you, uh, we're trying to, to mature in our pursuit of that goal and kind of take the next step of really more focus and more structure and ways to really pursue that collectively as a church. So on October 2nd, You can kind of put that down in in the back of your mind. We're going to have a a lunch after church for those that are interested in that particular arena of justice where we can kind of unveil or at least have another level of discussion and say, here's what that's going to look like. Here's how we're going to try to mobilize ourselves uh, more intentionally and with, with a greater focus towards the area of justice. And so lots of progress taking place there. Then 200 was discipleship, and that was the fact that we wanted to see 200 baptisms in the life of our church, and, and it, we have said throughout the whole process that this does not have to be baptisms that take place in this baptistry, right? It's really baptisms that take place as a result of your personal relational investment in others. told you a couple weeks ago about one individual in our church uh, who was a chaplain and was able to baptize two uh, of, of his clients as a way of personal investment in them, and that didn't take place in our church. But that's still something we're celebrating, right? It's, it's the way that God is using us to impact others. And so we have at least nine awaiting baptism. Got to celebrate Aiden Calvin's baptism last week, which was awesome. And when we get through all nine of those, we'll be probably somewhere in that neighborhood of 25 to 30 that we've been able to celebrate as a church. And I've said all along in this process, I believe God can take us to that milestone in a day. Amen. Right? I mean, we read Acts and we, they hit 3,000 in a day. And that's not to say that we're going to see that again. But at the same point, God is capable. And so we, we believe that that can happen in his timing. My point is that's always going to be our goal. Right? Our goal is always going to be a level of baptisms and making disciples, no matter how long it takes. So it may be five years from now and I may be standing on the stage going, we're at 198, Gosh, We can get there. Hopefully I don't sound that old in five years. But, but I'll still... I'll still be putting it in front of you. We're going to keep pursuing it is my point. And, and so your response to that, as I've said, is who, your home, your household, whatever that household looks like, can you find one person, one, one family that you could invest in and just see what God does, right? Just see what God does. So, so maybe God is prompting you in that regard. These are all the goals that we've had as a church to pursue this vision. I do have one uh, exciting update as well that I want to share with you. Oh, man, I left my phone, and I was going to read you this email. I'll summarize it. Uh, but essentially, when we do these things internally, it's always designed to compel us outwardly as well. And, and this is a church that's living on mission into the community and into the world, and we do that in a lot of different ways. One of the things that I wanted to report back to you on uh, this morning was just some positive feedback that we've received in terms of our investment in Seminary Hills Park. Uh, at Seminary Hill Park Elementary. We, we, over the last month, we've raised money for backpacks to help provide backpacks to every student. Not too long ago, uh, at the well, the women brought in a bunch of different shoes to help provide shoes for students. And so this week, I got an email uh, from the principal there at Seminary Hill Park. I'm gonna read it to you. Um, and essentially, it, she says, uh, here's, here's a picture of a student who just received a, his new backpack and new shoes as a result of your ministry. Um, And she says in the email, thank you so much to your church and y'all's generosity, look at the smile on his face. Now because of your generosity, this student can focus on school and his education and not have to worry about a backpack and shoes and clothing. So thank you, thank you, thank you. That was a direct quote, thank you, thank you, thank you. And so I wanted to share that with you all. Thank you church, put your hands together for your generosity and support. So I share all those things to let you know that, that this, all these things are evidence or indicators or markers of living as a renewed church. right? Or, or maybe on a more individual level, what it means to live as God's renewed people or the renewed life, which has been our theme throughout the whole year. And, and it's so exciting and uplifting to see those things and to point back to those things, to see what God does when he renews us and when he restores us. The question that I want us to wrestle with this morning is, renewed from what, right? And, and that's, that's honestly a question that is never really super uplifting. And, and so I'll just kind of go ahead and say that today. It's not gonna be the most uplifting message that you've ever heard, but it's easily one of the more necessary ones, right? That we need to take time to ask ourselves, what exactly is God renewing me from? What have I overcome? I think that's a really important part Of the discussion and so here's how I want us to to broach the subject I'm gonna give you an illustration um, to kind of help set an image and also I think the tone for this in in February of this year February 2022 we were all informed of the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine and and I know there were a variety of different responses that likely occurred when that news began to hit for me I was fairly engrossed in that news for a couple of weeks uh, just because of a lot of different reasons one Probably just being the human nature that is drawn towards just trying to take in how we treat one another, right? I mean, it's that same impulse that we have when we drive down the road and you see a wreck on the side of the road, like you stop and you're just kind of shocked by the horror of what can happen. And so part of it was just kind of consumed by the brutality of war. Uh, Part of it was fear uh, that I was dealing with was, can this escalate? Can this impact us here in a more direct way? Uh, a lot of it was because I was, I was constantly hearing that this was going to happen quick and it was going to be very public, that Russia was going to take over in a matter of days. I mean, all these things kind of contributed to a very focused obsession for a couple of weeks with the war in Ukraine. Um, if, if I can be honest, since then, I, it's received a lot less focus and attention from me. And I would be willing to bet I'm probably not alone in that. Um, that now when I hear it referenced, it's, it's kind of offhand, it's, it's more in the background. It's, it's almost like it's kind of faded to background noise, which in and of itself is somewhat concerning, right? That a, that a war of, of global repercussions can kind of become background noise. Uh, but for me, it, it kind of has, and I would be willing to assume it has for many of you as well. And so I actually want to stop for a moment and, and just take in the sort of impact that war has had on Ukraine. And so rather than give statistics or data, I just want to show it to you. Um, I brought some before and after pictures that they're going to start showing you that you can see what life looked like before February and what it now looks like today. And, and they're just going to cycle through some of these photos, and, and you're going to get a chance to see, again, visually just the impact that war and devastation can have. And just the sort of transformation that takes place when that sort of brutality begins to unfold. And, and as they're cycling through these photos, here's what I want you to think through. It's, it's, it's one of those things you see these photos and you see the transformation of these areas. And in and of itself, it's probably pretty breathtaking in a, in a concerning way, right? I mean, it's just a, a lot to process but I want you to think about how much different it would be for you to process these photos if you knew these places. Like It's one thing just to see it on the internet or to see it as a slideshow, but but what if that was your home? What if that was your workplace or your neighborhood or your church? And just how devastating that would be. Now, on one level, I, I bring this up and hopefully it prompts all of us to continue to pray for him. But I also think it, it communicates something to us that I want us to wrestle with today is that when it's, when it's something that you see and you're standing in the rubble, you're seeing the devastation of the war, the level of grief, the level of being overwhelmed by that, to think how in the world can we ever move forward? How do I handle this level of devastation, right? That's a, that's a, a human response when you're in the midst of it, especially if it's your own place. And and when you're in the middle of that devastation, what you need is a word of hope. You need a whisper of encouragement in some way to say, yes, even these broken places can be renewed. They can be restored. Those folks in Ukraine can draw upon history. I've got photos from World War II that now kind of work in the opposite direction, right, that can show us how devastating that war was and how people rebuilt. And you can see some of these photos that give you kind of a similar picture, but in the other direction, what what those folks took in, but then what it is today, you can see that it's been restored. Broken places can be rebuilt. And so when that's your home, and that's your place, and then all of a sudden you see it restored and you see it rebuilt, but you are fully aware of how broken it was, how much more do you appreciate the renewal? How much more do you understand its worth and its significance because you realize at one point it was in rubble. You realize at one point it was war-torn and devastated. You knew and you intimately experienced what had to be overcome to achieve that renewal. See what I'm saying? That, that's the sort of work that we need to do today. Okay, and and so I want to take that image and that idea and bring it as a metaphor to the spiritual war that Paul introduced us to last week, this war between flesh and spirit. And to recognize for a moment the devastation that sin wreaks havoc on us with, right? The extent to which sin destroys and devastates the human heart and soul. That for us to truly appreciate the renewed life we have to ask ourselves, renewed from what? And we have to sit in that discomfort a little bit and wrestle with the brutality of sin. Right? That's why I would tell you that today is not necessarily the most uplifting message you're ever going to hear, but it is absolutely necessary. Because renewal is not possible without that sort of exploration into renewed from what? And so we're gonna sit in some of that discomfort today and I would actually encourage you maybe sit in it for longer than today. Uh, next week we'll get to really focus in on the victory that we have over sin but today we're gonna to sit in, in that tension of discomfort of recognizing the sort of brutality that sin brings into our lives that, that makes us yearn for renewal. <clears throat> and while we sit in that discomfort, <clears throat> we're also not gonna lose sight of the hope that we have in Jesus. That with Jesus, God makes all things new. Rebuilding is always possible. He calls us to come be restored and be renewed. And so that's gonna be what we look at today. Turn your Bibles to Romans 7. And in Romans 7, as we introduced the subject last week, Paul brings to light this, this, this war, this spiritual conflict between spirit and flesh. And when he does this, uh, he begins to try to explain to us the role that the law has in all of it. And um, he uses the law in these first six verses as we talked about last week to infer this idea that the law arouses sinful desires and certain passions, right? And then even in verse six that, that now we have this choice to really kind of go in the way of the spirit and not in the way of the written code, And so, so much of what he's doing and the way that he's talking about the law and about sin, it's almost as if the law is igniting sin within us. It's almost like the law is creating these sinful desires. And so, that leads to an inevitable question that he has to ask, is the law then sinful? And that's going to be what he focuses it on. We're going to look at verses 7 through 13 today. As Paul explains how sin uses the law. And in his exploration of that question, we're going to see just how horrific sin really is. So let's follow along. Verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. And once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. But did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Okay, So here's what Paul does. He seeks to answer that question, is the law then sinful? And just to make sure we're clear from the very beginning, he gives us the immediate answer, by no means, certainly not. All right, so so let's make sure we have that understanding. There's no part of the law in which Scripture teaches is sinful, okay? So what does he do? He explains to us how sin uses the law so that we can see sin to be utterly sinful, and, and when you read through these first uh, verses, 7 through 11 in particular, if you're like me, he, he talks about kind of his experience with the law, and that's how I typically read it, right, is that Paul says, you know, you, you get these commandments and you get these ideas, don't covet, which kind of brings up these covetous desires, and then I realize that all these different laws that I'm hearing bring death to me, and, and, and it makes me aware, aware of my sin. And, and when I read this, it makes me think about Paul's personal experience with maybe the Ten Commandments, or really the laws of Moses, not just the Ten Commandments, but, but all of Leviticus, all the different laws that we see in the Old Testament in Paul's kind of personal struggle with it. And I, and I think that's an appropriate understanding of verses 7 through 11 to a certain extent. But when you really dive deeper into the terminology, uh, the way he's sharing this, the, what he's teaching and how he's teaching it here, He's really making a very strong reference to Genesis 3. And, and I want to point that out, that a lot of what is happening in verses, in seven, verses 7 through 11 are drawing the reader, the drawing the, the audience, the church, back to the story of the fall in Genesis 3. That this isn't so much referencing the law of Moses and the Ten Commandments, but really the way that sin first grabbed a hold of humanity as a whole. So let me just make a few connections in verses seven through 11 that that make that point, then what we're gonna do is actually go to Genesis three to see how sin works, to see the tactics of sin, and then we'll kind of come back to the last uh, part of this section, verses 12 and 13, okay? So let me just highlight a few things where you can kind of reference there. Verse seven, when you see him reference, I would have not known what sin was. That is a reference to knowledge, right? In the tree of knowledge of good and evil, makes you aware of sin, right? It, it, if you eat of the fruit of that tree, you know good and evil. So there's this discussion about knowledge and coming into a certain awareness. Uh, he talks about coveting and desire. Now, this is an interesting point because at this point in time, when Paul's writing this letter to the church in Rome, uh, it was a, a common belief that coveting was the heart of all sin, Right, because if you covet something, think of all the things that that desire can lead to. It can lead to stealing. It can lead to uh, adultery. It can lead to uh, 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 gossip. It can lead to greed. It can lead to all sorts of th- murder. Right, coveting desires can lead to all different sorts of acts. And so, when he says not to covet, it in many ways he's talking about the heart of sinfulness, which again you find in Genesis three right? It's the temptation of desire, right? Desiring the fruit, and it's the heart of all sin. You get to verse 8. Sin seizing an opportunity afforded by the commandment uh, also speaks to the garden. He starts talking about the commandment. And again, for us, a lot of times we hear the word commandment, we kind of immediately travel to Moses and the Ten Commandments, but really he's not talking about Ten Commandments. He's talking about the commandment. And so what was the first commandment, right? It was don't eat do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil right it was that commandment that 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 sin then sprang to life and grabbed a hold of and that's where you can kind of see verses 9 and 10 working somewhat collectively together making the same point that sin seizes the opportunity springs to life when that commandment is offered and what happens right the commandment that was intended to bring life god saying don't eat Right? If you don't eat, then, then you'll stay alive. This is how this is going to work. This, this command is good for you, but what happens instead? Sin seizes the opportunity, and now that commandment leads to death. Because if you break this commandment, what's the consequence? You will surely die. And then you get to verse 11, and now there's the language of deception. Right? There's this personification of sin throughout these few verses, just like the serpent is per- personified in Genesis 3, and both of them work in the art of deception. Right? So there's a lot of correlation in verses 7 through 11 in this chapter that dr- take you back to Genesis 3. And, and so having kind of laid that out, here's what I want us to do. To, to complement what we've just read in Romans 7, I want us to go back to Genesis 3. Uh, you, don't, you can turn there if you want to. I don't have it on the screen uh, but we're going to look at Genesis 3 to get a better understanding of how this all works. How does sin seize this opportunity and grab a hold of the human heart and lead us towards death, right? How does it use the commandment in such a way? And so I'm, I'm going to read Genesis 3, just the first six verses of that chapter. Uh, we've actually, I've taught on this before. And so if you want the, the further exploration into Genesis 3, you can, you can search online for our sermon archives or you can email me. We can get it to you. But we're going to hit some highlights of it this morning. Uh, Verses 1 through 6, Genesis 3. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Okay, so you look at Genesis 3 and and what you have is a story that helps us understand how sin works. So a couple of things that I want to point out. Uh, The first is this. When when sin really begins to wreak havoc on the war-torn soul, the first thing it's going to do is it's going to get us to question God. Right? Did God really say? Right? Just question it. Right? Before he even accuses God of doing anything else, the first tactic is just question him. Right? And when we question God, what happens? We essentially, just by asking to a certain extent, are undermining his authority. This happens in any scenario, right? Even if it's innocent, it does have a certain level of undermining authority. If you were a student in a classroom and you begin to ask your teacher to explain her rationale, his rationale, for whatever assignment, excuse me, teacher, why do we have to write this? Why do we have to study this? Right, even if it's innocent, to a certain extent, you are now putting the teacher back In a certain position where they have to justify their decisions, their plan, their intent. It undermines their authority. So when you question God, to a certain extent, even if it's innocent, it undermines the authority that he is supposed to have. Did God really say? And now all of a sudden we've lessened and diminished his authority and elevated our own to where God, God has to justify himself to us. And so we question him. And we can question God in a lot of different ways, right? We can question, does he exist? We can question, is he good? Uh, we can question, does he care? We can question, is this really what he said and question his word? You can question God in a lot of different ways, but just the inherent asking and questioning can, can lead you down a path. Now, that's not to say you shouldn't have questions. We all have questions gonna have a whole series about doubt and questions later. There's a good way to handle that, but that typically is step one. Questioning, did God really say? Right? The second step is this, is to distort either God's character or his word. The devil, the serpent, sin, however you want to qualify it, describe it, the next tactic is to first get you to question God, then to distort his character and or his word. Right? Did God really say you can't eat? from any tree in the garden. That is not at all what God had said. If you're familiar with the creation story, God actually said the opposite. He said you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But what sin's going to do is it's going to distort his words so that you have a different view of his character. right? Just by asking that question, did he really say you can't eat from any tree? Now I'm painting God to be restrictive, not giving. right? God is being protective. He's being... He's being selfish, he's not giving, he's not empowering, he's not entrusting. And so it's twisting God's word and in so doing distorts his character and it distorts his word. Sin does this all the time. Gets us to question his character. Does, does God really care about me? Is his intent really trustworthy? Is that really what his word said? Right? Anything that allows us to begin to question Right? his character, his word, and question, his authority, that's exactly what sin wants to do. Why? Because the minute those things can creep in, we are primed and ready to be deceived. That's exactly where deception needs to take root. If I can question God and, and have a distorted view of his character and a distorted understanding of his word, now I can be deceived. So so Eve responds and says, well, no, he he didn't say that. He actually said we could eat from any of them. We just can't eat from that one. If we eat from that one, we'll die. But because those first two tactics have been put in place, now the deception can be played out there. Oh, you won't die. No, you won't. That's wrong. That's not going to happen. In fact, it's going to be good for you. Your eyes are going to be opened. and You're going to be able to discern good from evil. This is how sin works. Right? It, it deceives you. It, it, it preys upon that fleshly desire, that, that inner voice, and gets you to ask, actually like wrestle with yourself a little bit. Right? And we can all see this anytime we have those impulses that we, we evaluate within our own heart and mind. I'll give you the innocent example, right? Uh, I stay up late most every night, and so it gets to be 11, 11 and I'm hungry again. Because you shouldn't be up that late. And it's been five hours since dinner, whatever it is. And so I want a snack. And so I know I shouldn't. And I know that if I'm gonna, I should have fruit or like an almond. Uh, but my inner voice says, ice cream sounds amazing. Right? And, and that's the struggle. I start going, now I know I, know I shouldn't. Um, and, and I know all the reasons why, but then there's this other voice, and what happens? You'll be fine. You've worked hard. You're stressed. Come on, enjoy the ice cream. What harm can it do? That's how sin works. You won't die. It'll be good for you. Your eyes will be open. Oh, you don't need to worry about lust. It's not going to hurt you. Oh, you... You know, you probably shouldn't say that about that person. You probably shouldn't gossip in this moment, but it's okay. Go ahead. Right? I know that you shouldn't be angry with him. You shouldn't hold on to that resentment. You know that's bad for you, but God, I mean, they really deserve it. How many times, how many decisions do we go through in life that we know it's wrong, that that voice, that sinfulness deceives? Oh, you'll be fine. Do it anyway. And when that happens, the result and really the most terrifying aspect of this deception is what the devil says next, which is what we really want, which is, no, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God. Now, very few of us walk around saying that and thanking that, right? Very, very few of us, even though we may have the God complex, would rarely acknowledge it. But it's the same result. Because ultimately what has happened here through the whole story of Genesis 3 is that God has created this amazing creation and has established himself as the authority, the one on the throne. He says, I'm going to know what's best for you. I'm going to be able to determine for you what is right and what is wrong. You need to trust that. And the human heart says, I don't want to. I want to be the one that gets to make that decision. Right? If I eat of this fruit and my eyes are open, and I get to determine for myself what is right and wrong, I get to be like God. And that's the way of the human heart, that's the flesh, to be sole determiners of our own lives. We all want that, right? That I want to be able to decide what's greedy and what isn't. I'm going to be able to decide whether that was lust or if it wasn't. I'm going to decide what kind of life I want to live, how I want to live it, when I can live it, and to what capacity. I get to decide all those things. It's my truth, my way, my truth, I'm God. That's what sin does. That's the deception. And and the reality is, it destroys us and wreaks havoc on the soul. And we end up living a life with these war-torn souls. And sin, now, with that deception in place, springs into action. Right, all of a sudden, Eve is no longer making her decisions based on what she heard, the voice of the Lord, but what she sees. And what does she see? Oh, it's good for food, right? It's pleasing to the eye, and it's desirable for gaining wisdom. What is she doing? She's coveting. It's desire. And now it's fully born, it's it's flourishing within her own heart. And so what does she do? She takes, she eats, she gives. Boom. That's how sin works. That's how sin works. And and so when when Paul writes this out in Romans 7, he's just giving it a more modern or more applicable context to his particular situation. Is the law sinful? No. But I wouldn't have known what sin was had it not been for the law. I would not have known what coveting really was. If the law had not sinned, you shall not covet Sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting, for apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. The moment that took place for Adam and Eve, death entered in. A death that was ultimately separation from God and being shackled to the flesh. And that is the war that wages on even today. Right, and, and so here's Paul's point, right? He gets to verse 12, and he essentially says so the law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. What is at work here is sin, not the law. Right? So so don't confuse the two. The law can't be dead to us, by no means. But here's what happened. Look at verse 13. In order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death. So that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Do you hear that? This is how awful and wretched and powerful sin is. It takes that which is holy. And righteous and good, that which was intended to bring life and brings about our death. That's how powerful it is. Sin is utterly sinful. That word utterly means beyond measure, <laughs> all surpassing extraordinarily. Right? We have to recognize and reconcile with how destructive. Sin really is if we're ever going to find renewal. We have to see just how awful it is that it could actually take the law, that which is holy, righteous, and good, and use it to bring about our own death. We have to take sin seriously, do you? All right? That's that's ultimately the question for us this morning. And that's really how we're going to kind of shift and end our time, is to recognize that in order for us to to find the renewal that we need, the only way through that is to acknowledge the seriousness that sin brings into the human heart, to confess it, and to repent. Like, that's, that's the work of renewal. That's where it really begins. That's where it has to take place. And my fear is that for many of us, the war between the flesh and the spirit, the, the war-torn souls that we experience has become background noise. It's just faded into the, the distance. And we just push it aside. Now, I don't I don't need to worry about confession. I don't need to worry about repentance. I'm good. And we don't ever really do the hard work of wrestling with our own brokenness. When was the last time you've done that? And, and here's the reality. Um, we all need to. Right, so like if you're sitting there going, well, I don't know if I even really have sin in my life. That's your sin, okay? Like, that's it, you just found it. But I think most of us would recognize, no, there's a whole lot that's been wreaking havoc on my heart and my soul. I just haven't wanted to go there i haven't wanted to go there i I, I want that in the background so what we 're going to do today is we're going to we're going to deal with it right we're going to actually just embrace the moment, sit in the discomfort of it, and we're going to reflect upon the way that sin gets a hold of us and to 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 really kind of seek out our own hearts, our own souls, our own minds, and to enter into a spirit and a time of confession and repentance as an act of worship. All right? And so here's what we're going to do. Here in a minute, um, we're going to do our typical response song. Um, and, and yet at that moment, what I'm going to ask for you to do is to embrace the opportunity to come before the Lord and really enter into a time of confession and Repentance. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and ask the band to come back up and the deacons to get in their spot where they typically position themselves so that they can receive you for prayer um, if you have any. And here's, here's what we're going to do. Uh, the altar is going to be open. Okay, Here in a minute I'm going to lead us into some guided prayer and uh, we're going to have a chance to really just try to come before the Lord humbly in that regard. And, and I'm going to encourage you to consider what that posture needs to look like so that you can honestly and authentically come before the Lord and deal with any sin that's in your life, because um, we all have it. And so every every week that we do this, uh, we say that the altar is open. And I get it. Like for some of you, you know, you don't feel the need to. Spirit doesn't lead you to come forward. Don't you don't have to. Uh, for some of us, we don't want to come forward because we're fearful that people are going to wonder why. Um, and so we'd rather just, some of us don't want to walk that far, you know, I mean, there's a lot of different reasons that we stay in our seats, and that's totally fine, you can stay in your seat today, do as the Spirit leads, Um, but I would also tell you that there's something powerful about engaging all of your senses before the Lord, to say, I'm really going to come to the altar today and deal honestly with brokenness in my life, with sinfulness in my life, and if that means I've got to get up and come before the Lord right here, I'm going to do it, if that means I actually need to be vulnerable enough to to admit some things in my life and and receive prayer, the last thing the devil wants you to do is receive prayer for it. And so there's power in that vulnerability. And so we're gonna open up this altar. And I'm gonna encourage you, whether you stay seated or you actually come forward to deal honestly with whatever is going on in your life. And here's, here's what I want you to do is to sit in that discomfort but don't lose sight of a Savior who calls you and says, all of it can be rebuilt. Right, that that's the path towards renewal. To come before this Savior and to give your sin to him and let him wash your sins white as snow. And to say, let me give you grace and forgiveness and mercy and bring you into the power of true renewal. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to come to the altar and let this Savior do his work. So I'm going to ask you just to bow your heads, close your eyes for a moment. Just find yourself alone before the Lord. And this is not easy but it is necessary. I want you to search and ask for the Spirit's guidance to help you search the darker places of your heart, your soul, and your mind. And ask the Spirit to help you see what has held you captive. Some of you know immediately what it is. Some of you can feel it, but maybe you can't name it. I want you to acknowledge it before the Lord. I want you to give it a name. Is it grief? Is it depression? Is it fear? Is it anger? Is it lust? Is it greed? Resentment? Give it a name. And don't let it have authority over you anymore and then i want you to hear the voice of a savior i want you to hear him calling you he says you're loved While you're a sinner, who died for you so that you could be washed clean, I want you to listen to his voice and hear him calling you, telling you to be renewed. That is the power of confession, that is the power of repentance. Of a renewed life, to see a war torn soul made new. Father, we come before you knowing that our sin is real and it is heavy. So we run from it no longer and we fall into your arms. That you would heal, help us rebuild, help us be restored to your glory, both now and forevermore.